This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts and available wherever you get your videos because we are doing this as a dual podcast and video, and I'm really excited about it. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, the way we run political campaigns and politics in America, it has changed drastically in the last two decades. Today, political campaigns wield three times more money than just 20 years ago, and they leverage far more sophisticated data and media tools paired with what our guest today calls astounding and unnerving amounts of information on voters. So what are all these tools that American political campaigns have and what do they mean for our politics and who we elect to run our country? And do all of them actually work? I'm kind of dying to know the answer to that last one. And I'm going to ask our outstanding guest today. Now, look, his full name is Michael Cohen, but you don't want to go Googling Michael Cohen and politics these days because you're going to get all kinds of hits that you're not looking for. This Michael Cohen, MC Mike Cohen, has worked for 25 years in politics, mostly in polling, and has just vast academic and practitioner experience in politics. He's a, he's a professor. He teaches at Johns Hopkins University, and he is just a frequent media presence. I, I, it's, it's too long a list of all the media outlets he's been a part of. Meet the Press podcast with Chuck Todd. That's exciting. Politics, politics, politics podcast. They know what they're about. Campaigns and elections, The Hill, Business Insider, Fox News. He's been absolutely everywhere talking about his book, Modern Political Campaigns. He's got all the answers. His book's been endorsed by all the top pros in the business. Really excited to talk about it. Mike Cohen, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks so much, Matt. I appreciate it. This is a ankle free, ankle bracelet free uh, podcast today. As far as you know, our viewers can't see my. I woke ankles. up. There was no ankle bracelet. Right. <laughs> right. Well, let let's see how we go. Maybe we'll get ourselves in trouble. All right. Let, let me kind of start at the top. I mean, I I sort of teased the idea a moment ago that a lot has changed. I come from a vintage as a practitioner of politics. That's about. 15, 10, 15 years old. And I'm really astonished by my friends and colleagues who are still in the game. I don't want to call it a game. It's super serious, but who are still in it. Just how much has changed. It is, it is radical. And the very first chapter of your book is about what has changed overall, particularly around parties and elections in recent decades. So what do you think is the biggest change from the standpoint of candidates and their campaign teams? So the biggest change, whenever you're looking at candidates, their campaign teams, and their relationship to the political parties, is that we're no longer looking at political parties as deciding who's going to run and who's not going to run. These are self-starters. These are entrepreneurial candidates who are basically putting teams around themselves and then going ahead and running. And what is happening with the parties in the best of situations, and it's actually the way it's been evolving over the past 25 years, and I would say you're right, within the past 15 and supercharged, 
is that these have become vendor hubs parties. They will tell you, okay, these are the vendors that we usually work with. These are the people that we think are really good at polling or data or you know, grassroots or media. And so why don't you go talk to these people, right? And so they are sort of clearing houses for the blessed. And so that's what parties are at this point in campaigns. You know, anyone can wake up today and just decide, hey, you know, screw it, I'm gonna go ahead and run. And if you put together a good campaign, there's a market for you. There's, and there will be money for you, which is actually the other biggest change in politics is that when I was first starting in you know, the late 90s, you had to get the party endorsement because that came with money. And you know, now you can wake up and blow up someone's Twitter feed and create an email list and do all the kinds of things that modern campaigns do and raise a ton of money and be the one who forces the party to listen to you and forces the party to sort of endorse you after the fact, even though they may not want you. And so right now, we are sort of at the end game of where candidates versus their own parties are. They are in the driver's seat. And the best parties are the ones who are figuring out ways to support their candidates with, you know, with money and sort of intelligence and data and finance and sort of other teams. But it's not really the other way. And so that's, that's where we are at this point. Yeah, I, I can totally ratify everything you're saying. I remember I was the chief of staff for a, a member of the House who decided to run for the Senate in the 2010 cycle. And I had a conversation with the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, the DSCs. Yep. They're the guys who, you know, for the Democrats and mostly gals at the time, actually, who, you know, helped the Democrats run for Senate. And they said, all right, you need a fundraiser. Here's the list of people you may hire. Here, right. who, who do you have as a pollster? Okay, that person is fine. Who do you have for your Not. TV? And so <laughs> on and so on. Exactly. And so on and so forth. So totally right. I do want to pick though up though on the second point you were making though about fundraising. That seems to be a really obvious place where we've seen, and it's so apparent even to people who aren't inside campaigns, just big, big changes. It's that nature of fundraising. I, I mentioned we spend three times more on elections in this country than we did two decades ago. It was $14 billion in the 2020 cycle. That's a lot. And the way we raise it online from low dollar donors is, is totally different. You, you know, Social media is a big source. On the other hand, what goes with that is, I mean, I don't think there's a listener or a viewer out there who isn't on some email list just getting a barrage, a total torrent of messages like, oh my gosh, if you don't give now, Donald Trump is coming to your house. He's probably going to steal your lunch. It, 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 you know, you're getting all this stuff. It's not your wife. Yeah. Right. And it's, well, we, we all know about that one. And it's, you know, it's all this negative, vitriolic, scary stuff. So is the fundraising process, is it a good thing? <laughs> like this, this kind of a change, what has the effect been? Is it kind of driving some of our political polarization? What, what has the effect been? So here's, here's the existential crisis in politics right now. It is the difference between positivity and negativity. Like it's the one thing that I found in my research as an academic going through my dissertation. I looked at political advertising. I also looked at it as a master's student. And I've also seen it throughout my career. The problem is, is that negative is what pulls you in, okay? Everyone wants to say that I, I just want positive ads or I just want positive appeals and all that. And the, the problem is, the real problem, the business problem behind politics right now is that that doesn't work. 
And it doesn't work for a lot of in most people who are going to vote, particularly those who vote in primaries. So that's why the industry has gone real negative on both sides of, of the aisle. I mean, no matter if you're a DNR, you are getting emails saying that, for example, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin is going to unmask your kids and kill your kids, right? Or Terry McAuliffe is going to allow your teenage kid to have an abortion and not tell you about it. Or, you know, Glenn Youngkin, I mean, just beyond all the ways it's gone insane. It really has. And I think to a certain extent, it is professionalism malpractice. But on the other side, it's also responding to what the market is. Because right now you have the tools to figure out which ads work. You have the tools to figure out which email works. You know, which um, tweets are getting the most virality. You know, who, who's actually paying attention to all of this? And what we found, sadly, and this, this is not new. Again, this is at least 25-year-old research. It's not 30, 35-year-old research. That negativity sells stronger than positivity. And so what that really means right now is that when you go to scale, which is where we are right now, and that's the big difference. We used to know that maybe negative would be important, but you could only afford a couple of mail pieces, right? And so you knew you, one of them had to be positive to start off with, and then you can go a couple of negative, but then that's your campaign on some level, right? You don't have more information to give people. You don't have enough money. But now that you have all the money you could ever want, in some cases, for some of these campaigns, you now can go ahead and flood the zone with all kinds of negativity. Right. And that's what's weighing people down now, because what works is not exactly what we want. So behaviorally, how we react is different than how we actually want democracy to work. And that's the tension, because you have professionals who are working in this industry saying, well, I don't get paid if I lose, right? I get paid the more I win. So I know I have to win, so what works? And you're gonna tell a candidate, well, you may not win, but you'll feel much better about it if you lose. That's not a winning strategy from a business strategy. And that's not something to tell a hyper-competitive person who's willing to put their name on a ballot that that's worth their time. So that's the tension right now. And you're right, it is leading to greater polarization. It is also leading to people who are just dropping out of politics entirely, but it's also pulling more people. It's mm. pulling more people in to give money, to give more money, to be angrier, more posts on social media, and to be more active. So to a certain extent, it's doing both. And that's really the challenge that we have in the system right now. Well, in terms of all that polarization and negativity, is it more the case that the dog is wagging the tail or the tail is wagging the dog with campaigns, because I kind of hear a little bit of both in, in what you're saying. To some extent, you have very intelligent people, consultants working on these campaigns yeah. who have, you know, they, they, they have access to information about what works and they're responding. They're responding right. to what the marketplace is telling them. On the other hand, they're, they're sort of driving the marketplace too, because, you know, a big difference is and it started, I think the practice largely became current with the Obama campaign that you could beta test fundraising messages in yeah. real time. It's something that email gives you that, you know, Karl Rove got his start in politics sending fundraising letters. Well, you don't yeah. get real time feedback. I've sent a bunch of those in campaigns, you know, and over the next few weeks, even months, you know, you, you'll see, you'll see what, how much each thing raised. 
Well, what you can do with email and social media is you find out now, like right. now, now. And so right. it, it just creates this ever declining slide toward what works. And as you say, the, the, what works is the most vitriolic stuff. So which do you think is, is sort of the dominant thing here? Or is it, a, is it a feedback loop? Is it polarization reads campaign tactics and then campaign, campaign tactics reads polarization? Which way is it? I really think the, I think the politics has been driving the polarization. I mean, I think that we have choices in every business that you're in. So I do a lot of consulting with you know, corporations and with public affairs agencies and things like that. And I think they have to make choices, right? So if you are McDonald's, do you wake up every day wanting to beat the crap out of Burger King? Or do you want to go ahead and talk about your new you know, chicken sandwich, right? I mean, you have choices, right, to make. Now, while it would be really funny to see a scrum between like, you know, Ronald McDonald and the creepy guy from Burger King. You know, Who is the guy from off. Burger King? Oh, it's the Burger King himself. It's the Burger King. Right? The Burger King. The pasty Burger King guy, right? So Yeah, they're, they're both very frightening. The Burger King years. I can't afford that anymore. I'm 51 and if I eat that stuff, I die. So, or I, or I spend too, way too much time in a certain room in my house that I'd rather not, right? But between the two, if, do you, re you, you would get a lot of clicks, right? If you threw the two of them in the octagon, right? And decided, okay, that's how we're gonna settle this. Or if you had negative ads going back and forth, it would be hilarious, right? But would it really be okay? And would it really be good for either of these folks, you know? And so I think what it comes down to is this, is that the people who run campaigns have to balance a little bit more on the other side of, okay, I'm a small D Democrat here. You know, I am much more concerned about what's happening in democracy. And I think now, you know, with what happened over the past couple of cycles, we should be more concerned about that than we should, than we have been and have been taking it for granted. So, you know, what you can do is you can say, okay, look, to your candidates, you're getting in this for the right reasons. You want to do good things for certain people, you know, for certain reasons. You want to accomplish certain goals. If you go in there and you decide that you're going to just destroy 40% of the electorate because you feel like you can get 50 plus one, when you're there, you're not going to be able to get things done. And that's what's happening right now. So they're, they're not thinking beyond the campaign and what's the output of the campaign. They're just thinking about the winning. And I think that it's incumbent upon us as consultants to say to our clients, look, the easiest thing as a consultant is to say yes, right? The toughest thing to say to a, a, a client is no. And you, some, once in a while, you have to say to your client, I'm just not going to do that. And you know what? Most of the time when you do that, your clients respect you, whether they are political, whether they're corporate, or whether they're public affairs, they're like, okay, he's not just in this just for the money you know, or just right. in this for the winning, like there's more to this. And I think that we have to sort of get back to that, not from a political science standpoint, but just from a practical standpoint that we, we are now deadlocked in Congress to get anything done. And that's by design based upon what's going on in our campaigns. That is a direct influence on how we've decided to go ahead and vote for people. Mm. And so I think it really comes down to us who are involved in this that's a professional piece on, on that book that I wrote. You know, professionalism, professionals need to understand that you don't kill the industry just because you want to win. 
And at some level, we've got to get that through to the best and brightest, and, and particularly the people who are coming up. And that's what I'm trying to do within my career. That is a really noble pursuit. And there's there's sort of the skeptic in me that thinks, okay, if the future of our country depends on the political consulting class, we might be in big trouble. On the other hand, I do think that there's so much deep wisdom in, in that observation there. My my mentor in grad school was David Gergen, the presidential advisor. Yeah. He's a talking head on CNN. And he said, look- I Worked on both sides. Yeah. I worked on both sides. And he said, look, you run into two types of people in Washington. There are people who go there to be somebody and there are people who go there to do something. And if you are going to run for office in order to be somebody, you're going to find that it's empty and self-defeating. And if you and go- you're also to find that you were never somebody. Yes, right, and right. If you're that empty- <laughs> Right, you are that empty that you are trying to fill yourself up with a, a title so that you feel better about yourself. Yeah. You know, you need, to, you need help. Right. Yeah, if you're not good enough without the title, no. you're not going to be good enough with it. On the and other that, hand, I'm happy you brought that up because, like, that was sort of the core of my friend Chris, who I dedicated the book to. You know, after he died, there was an epitaph that was printed out for all of us by his by his mom, and it was like, you know, don't just go to be somebody, go to do something. Right. And I right. think that that is. We need more people like that and fewer people who just want to be internet celebrities who can then parlay that into some kind of media empire, who parlay that into a, a book that gets bought by the party because they're going to pump it up for you. I mean, yeah, but it's, it's not about that. And I, I feel like even the people that we disagree with, generally, those people are in it for the right reasons, but we're finding way too many other people who are coming into it saying, oh, politics has become the, the new hotness. So now I'm just going to run because I'm like this popular person. You know, I, I, I was I was in a movie. So shit, you know, I can go and run for office. I mean, why not? You know, yeah, well, so first of all, I, no, I'm not telling office. you, I don't want to tell you your business, but instead of naming your book, Modern Political Campaigns, which is good title, good, strong title, you should have called it Politics is the New Hotness. Yeah. That That's a little bit more viral. But yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I can, you know, again, I'm trying to balance the, you know, the professionalism versus the, it's a good point though. It's a good oh, point go though, because you, it, it is so hard to have a conversation with a nihilist, right? It yeah. with, with, when there's no, there are, look, there are progressives who are part of my own political party. I'm a Democrat sure. who I don't agree with, but I respect that they feel very passionate about doing something. There are conservatives right. who I don't agree with on substance, but I can have a conversation with them. We we have excellent exchanges of ideas and I used to on Capitol Hill and you know, we have a common basis for a conversation. If it's all unrequited love, you don't really get too far. I've got the good Michael Cohen. Not 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 evil Michael Cohen, not questionable I was a fool Michael Cohen who you might see as the star of congressional testimony I've got the author the professor the practitioner Michael Cohen the author of modern political campaigns an absolute must-have resource for everything that we've learned about how to run an effective campaign over the last 20 years you kind of interested in politics want to know all the latest you should check it out are you new to politics are you thinking of getting into the game you maybe you want to be a, maybe you want to be an operative. Maybe you want to be a consultant. Check out this book. Check out all the stuff that Mike Cohen has done online. You can find him just about everywhere. You just have to search for the right Mike Cohen. So, so 
is it tough walking around with that name? You know, it's really funny. I mean, you know, this came about when I was actually teaching over at GW and running the uh, political management master's program. And all of a sudden, this guy goes on the air on CNN. You know, his name is Michael Cohen, and he's he's crapping on polls. And yeah, I think it was Brianna Kiliar said um, something to the effect of, so which polls are, you know, are saying that Trump's ahead? And Michael Cohen goes, all of them. And I was like, oh, God, no. Like, this, this is now going to rule my life, right? And so a while back, like, I had the at Michael D. Cohen, you know, Twitter handle username. And I, I actually had it changed to Michael Cohen. So I was like, I should own my own name, right? That night, thousands of people decided that they were going to go blow up Michael Cohen, not realizing, like, it's the other guy. He's like, at Michael Cohen 212. And I'm like, Michael Cohen. So I had like Diamond and Silk. I had Geraldo <laughs> Rivera. I had like everyone and their mother decided that I was that guy. And I'm like, I'm not that guy. And so that night it was so funny. I, I started responding to them and I was redirecting them. And I realized like that's a full-time job, you know? And so, you know, eventually, you know, once in a while I'll go in and have a joke with people and stuff like that. But Honestly, growing up on Long Island, I mean, I think you and I talked about this. You grew up in New York. You know, if you've grown up on anywhere around New York, you knew a Michael Cohen, right? And I knew multiple Michael Cohens from Oceanside, New York, where I grew up. And so it wasn't like, oh, this is new to me. It's like, I, it was more like, I can't believe this is happening. Like, and then I would get notes from other people who would name Michael Cohen. And we would just have like, this sort of ad hoc work group. It was really fun. I, I'm I, very I, fortunate that I don't have a common name. I don't have a common spelling of my name, which is what made it even the more disturbing. I had a girlfriend right after college. And the very first time I came over to her apartment, she excused herself for a moment to step in the other room. And I'm just casually looking around. Her, her computer was on. The desktop was open. Not like snooping or anything. I happened to but notice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she's got a folder up, Matt Robeson's stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what a stalker. I am like making for the door when she emerges and I'm like, we got to talk about this. This yeah. is a conversation. No, 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 no. It's a crazy coincidence. I know another Matt Robeson. He's oh. a friend of mine from college. This is his computer. I was borrowing it. I have a folder of his. And by the way, that Matt Robeson went on to be very well known. He's like an LGBT activist, went on to a great career. That girlfriend of mine also went on to a phenomenal career. She's a, she's a well-known policy and uh, politics person herself. I'm not gonna not gonna throw her name out, but anyway, sure. We've different set of problems that you yeah. have. Michael Cohen, prolific author and I, I, I general think guru. Jeff, you just have to have a sense of humor about it. I mean, I'm I, I've always had a sense of humor about myself, and so like that happened. I'm like, oh, this is perfect for me. Let's go. <laughs> well, look at, at the very least, maybe you'll you'll pick up some social media follows inadvertently, and you know it'll it'll redound to your benefit. I mean, speaking of social media. You write in your book that, and I'm quoting here, the sheer amount of background available on prospective candidates and voters, which is what grabs me, is both astounding and unnerving at the same time. And we know that social media has become such a source, sometimes in a really bad way, like with the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal, but it's become this incredible source of micro-targeting information about people. There's been this 
quiet revolution in how much campaigns know about us and what they can do with that information. So walk us through that. What, what have the implications been of that revolution? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just what I said. I mean, it, it can be pretty creepy and also it can be very powerful for campaigns. It can be very, very powerful for, for people who want to communicate to you. I make sort of the, a dual argument here in the book. Number one, it can be super creepy. I mean, when you're scrolling through Instagram and you're seeing ads on things that you feel like you just talked about with a friend, like that's where it's kind of overboard. But then you like scroll through and you're like, I may have just talked about that, but yeah, I do actually want that. You know, <laughs> you know like there's that moment where you're, where you're like, all right, it's creepy, but I respect the game, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, right, yeah. And so, all right, so to a certain extent, you can either live in two worlds, right? You can live in the world where you get ads that mean nothing to you or content that mean nothing to you and you just scroll through and it wastes your time where you just jump off the platform because it's totally worthless. Or you get this sort of personalized view of things which is nice, but it's also limiting, right? Because that's what we're really worried about with polarization here is that you go down the rabbit hole and you never come out or you're never exposed to other views or you're never exposed to other things. They don't push you outside your envelope. They're trying to keep you happy, right? And, and long-term happy on the platform. That's really the problem, right? So the biggest problem really is the algorithms that you've been hearing about, particularly with Facebook lately. And there's two ways of going about doing a newsfeed, right? You can either do it by timeline, which is like what you have on Twitter, or you can do it algorithmically, which also Twitter offers, but Facebook exclusively offers, right? So I can't scroll through my feed and say, okay, well, God, you know, I know somebody posted something two minutes ago, but I'm not seeing it. That's because the algorithm has decided that you don't want to see that right now, even though you might, right? Based upon your tendencies. So the, the real problem for, and the challenge from a politics standpoint is that you can go ahead into Facebook and other platforms and define who your people could be. So let's say you have a list of a few thousand people who you know are core supporters of yours. You can upload those you know, profiles to the platforms and they will then give you like universes of people who will then look like the people you have. So you can go ahead and advertise to people who might be most persuadable to your message or most activated by your messages. What that also does is it makes it too easy on campaigns because then you don't have to reach out to anyone who might not agree with you. If you mm. say to yourself, the way campaigns are right now, all I have to do is get my people out and if they get their people out, they'll win. If I get my people out, we'll win. Well, what about right. Why try to persuade anyone? It's so much easier right. to just turn out people who already agree with you. Right. And that really is the biggest problem right now and the biggest opportunity with all of the data that we have now. So I predict and in the book and what I hope for, frankly, in how this evolves is we have become so good at pulling out our own base and our own people and pissing off the other people that eventually you've maximized the wings. And there's really only thing left for you to go after is that 10 to 15% in the middle that might matter in any campaign that's winnable. There are campaigns that are not winnable, right? And so to your point, you know, not all campaigns matter, okay? Some campaigns don't matter because the districts are drawn so dramatically one way or the other that you can't win no matter what you do, right? It's good for democracy if you have somebody run, but it may not be good for that person who's running because they're probably not going to win. But my hope is, is that we get to the point where we've completely maximized what we can learn for both wings and we decide, okay, the way we're going to win these elections and to win 
at least control over some of these legislatures is right there in the middle. And that middle right there becomes the premium that we then go after. And that's what's more interesting. And those people respond to positive messages more than negative. They respond to more personal messages more than just, you know, D's versus R, red versus blue. And that's the hope that I think sort of builds out as opposed to right now where, where campaigns are built from the out in. I listen to a ton of podcasts about politics. I read about politics. I write about politics. Yeah. This is the only, for our listeners and viewers, this is the first place that I've heard this novel idea from Mike Cohen here about a sort of money ball effect that maybe is on the horizon for politics where there's an undervalued segment right. to go after, just like the A's did 20 years ago. Maybe it will be the persuadable voters in the middle. We've learned that maybe that segment is only six or 9% of the electorate these days, but maybe that'll become the new efficient undervalued segment. I hope you're right about that. That's, that's a right. really fascinating insight. And that's, the, and that's the most valuable thing in politics in certain districts. And so right now, like if you're looking about like the money ball aspect of this, the A's figured out that they couldn't pay for home runs, right? Because those people cost too much money. So they went towards people who can get on base. And so this is the way that a campaign that is, you know, thinking about, you know, okay, well, I don't want to destroy democracy, but I also want to win. So the way you get those things to, to match is to say, okay, well, what's in the middle? What's a connected tissue here? And that's where you can go. And my hope is, is that with all the money that people are raising, you know, like you said, billions of dollars at this point, even sort of down ballot races now have tons of money that there's enough money there to do those kinds of things and to run those kinds of plays and those kinds of experiments to get to the point where we say, yeah, you know what, that'll work. And my guess is that what will happen is, because this is what happens in politics no matter what, somebody at the presidential level will figure it out and then everyone else will copy it. Because that's what happened with the Obama campaign. That's what happened with Howard Dean with raising money online. That's what happened with, you know, with every single innovation, it sort of starts out here and then everyone says, well, okay, is that too expensive for me? Or can I get something like that? And I think that now with all the money that's being raised, one of the good things about that is it gives money to these kinds of incentives to go ahead and, you know, go down the middle a little bit more as opposed to just taking the easy stuff on the left and the right. A, a totally novel insight that I am serious. I have not heard that anywhere else and I consume a ton of top level thinking about these kinds of things. So kudos to you. That's a really interesting insight. And your book is actually chock full of this kind of thing, which is why you're on Beyond Politics, where we try and really unearth some of the stuff going on under the hood. That's what we're all about. That's why I really appreciated this book. All right, look, a few minutes ago, I teased the idea that we oh. would get to some yeah. of these things, whether they work or whether they don't work, even under these new sophisticated tools that campaigns have been able to bring to bear. We've been running TV ads in this country to try and elect candidates since TV has been a thing. We have done mail. We certainly have tried to get attention in the press, right? We've, we've tried to get what you know, candidates call earned media. That's a euphemism. And of course, we've deployed signs. I wanted to ask you about each of these, but we don't have time today. And so I wanna do two things. One. I have already committed you, you are all in on a return appearance where we're going to dive into these things in much more detail. But let's at least 
let's at least do a 30,000 foot. My question is, of all these things, based on your in-depth review, and you're constantly teaching this stuff, what works these days? And I'm going to throw yard signs right in there. What works? Where do we have evidence that these are things that truly have an effect? And what are things where campaigns are going to need to rethink the model given changes in our politics and our technology? Okay, it's a great question. And I think that everyone who works in politics struggles with this kind of stuff. What I would say is this, that the closer you get to individual communication to individual voter, that's the strongest thing in politics right now. There was some great research done by um, Green Gerber a number of years ago, where they said they tested all kinds of different things, you know, sort of cards telling people, well, you know what, you voted, but they, you know, you haven't voted as much as your neighbors, or you haven't voted as much as your spouse, you know, come on out. Ted Cruz actually ran that play in 2016 and got some blowback because people were like, whoa, that's too creepy. You know, I don't want to hear that. Um, and yet it works, despite the fact that he has such a punchable face. Yes, no, it did work. And, and frankly, I mean, it really helped him win. And again, he's not a likable human being. He is not. He may be a great dad. He may be a great husband. I don't Possible. know. Possible. I mean, he'll at least fly his kids to Acapulco. I, I, I know. He can, yeah, you can put him on bus, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Good you stuff. Know, or, or like, here are the keys, kids. Go ahead. Yeah. No, but I, I mean, everything I've heard about him personally runs squarely against what we know about him professionally. That's so, quite possibly true. Him. Quite possibly true. And, yes. And also, you have to understand, too, that candidates sometimes decide that they have to take on a certain person. So, so much, too much, too much on tech So let's talk about the issue. So what, yeah. So what really works is if I am friends with you and we live in New York and I say to you, hey, you know, let's join the Yang gang, you know, and then we go out and we go to an event and we meet Yang and we decide, okay, Yang's our dude, let's go, you know, and we vote for Yang and, you know, we lose, but hey, you know, we tried, you know. So what works in politics really right now is more personal relationships. And I think that's actually really good. So like when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, television ads were the thing. Like you had to have a great ad, your ads really moved people. It really changed minds or, or changed people's votes. Those don't do as much right now. So the closer you can get to that one-on-one -on -one interaction, the better. So that's either door knocking, that's either making a phone call, texting works, email works to a certain extent. But again, the more authentic the communication and the more personal the communication, the better. So if a candidate is sending something out to everybody, that's not as good as if you send it out or if I send it out to, to a group of people who know me, okay? Number one. So that's the most important thing in politics right now is that politics has devolved down to personal relationships. That's good news because we now know the relationships between people because we can map that with all the data that we have. So Matt, you have groups of friends that you're close with. And if we, the more we know about you, the more we know your group of people who would actually listen to you if you sent a text. Same thing with me, right? Every single person who's a voter has a personal network that is open to listening to them talking about politics. And they also have people who are like, shut up, go away, right? So those are the things that we can now do that are actually super important. So if you're putting together content like an ad, whether it's a video or you know email or whatever, 
as long as it's being shared by somebody who, who you know really well and you're open to that communication, it's powerful. If it's just spam or if I send an email to 100 people that I know but no, don't know very well, doesn't work, probably turns people off as opposed to turning people towards my candidate. So it doesn't really matter right now if it's a TV ad or radio you know, or you know, audio content or even print or anything else, as long as it's coming from somebody who you know and you respect and care about and also are open to about politics, that's the key. Really, really interesting. And let me just turn that right around into, you've already provided us some foresight into innovation that campaigns may stumble toward in the near future. They may see an undervalued aspect of going after that six, 7%, whatever it is of persuadable voters, that may be where the future lies. But building off of what you were saying about what works, people are so inundated these days, they really seek authentic communication from trusted sources that they believe because that we flooded the zone with marketing and, and politics stuff. I was going to use a spicier word than that. And so people tune it out. They don't engage with it in a meaningful way. It, it's not going to change their mind. And so, and yet, and yet, and yet, of that $14 billion we spent in 2020, $8 billion of it was spent on TV ads. Yeah. And so I, I guess the, the way I turn that around into a question for you is, do campaigns, do politicians, do all the people who communicate for, for public reasons, for, for political reasons in this country, need to fundamentally rethink what they're doing? Yeah, the, the amount of money that they're spending on TV is really the problem. Now, the real question is, within that $8 billion, how much of it is being spent on broadcast TV? Mm. How much of it is spent on cable? How much of it is spent on streaming or addressable TV? All of those things are very, very different from each other, even though they're delivering the same kind of content. So if you're telling me that $8 billion was spent on addressable TV and streaming, well, then you're winning. Okay, because what you're able to do there is you're able to target much better than if even you're doing cable or if you're doing broadcast. So it starts with addressable TV because we know who you are. Streaming, you know, we know who you are, you know, less who you are if you're cable, and we know even less of the TV broadcast. My, my guess is if you looked at that data, and I think the last time I did, this, this was correct, is that it's, it's actually inverted. Like you should be spending more towards direct individuals as opposed to top, which is broadcast. And the reason why that, ha that is, is because it costs money to be able to understand where to put your money towards addressable TV and where to put it towards cable and other platforms, because that's harder to buy. And it's harder to buy with what you are trained to do over your career, which is gross rating points and demographics and things like that that are you know, our very 20th century at this point. The way to look at people now is to look at universes of voters, then ask the question, where are they? Then place the ad. So you, what they're doing instead is they're making great ads and then saying, let's just put them up. You know, let's get the most people. Well, you are, but you're getting the same people over and over again who are not persuadable, not interested, and you've wasted 80% of your money. Why wouldn't you maximize 80% of your money if you went to somebody who you knew was open to that message? 
And I feel like that's the difference between the way politics used to be run and the way it needs to be run effectively, which is connect the data to your messaging and to where you're putting it. That's the three bump shot now in, in politics. And the fact of the matter is that most campaigns are not doing that. And they're missing the opportunity to have that yeah. more authentic exchange, at least where you know who you're talking to. And so you can you can tailor a little bit more. All right, we are winding down. I promised, I promised that we would address yard signs. Okay. Let's do it. Because look, we're on broadcast radio in New Hampshire, nowhere. And I mean this lovingly of New Hampshire people. I do. Nowhere has the disease of yard signs vote more than New Hampshire. So lightning round, hit me with it. Do yard signs work? No, no. Yard signs are the, no, they don't. Okay. But yard signs are the ultimate sort of reflector, right? So if you are, for example, right now in um, Virginia, where I am, in Loudoun County, which is actually the purplest purple center of, you know, Virginia politics. If you drive around, you see a ton of Youngkin signs. You don't see any McAuliffe signs. I actually just went to lunch with a buddy of mine who said that he had one in his driveway. I'm like, I didn't even see it. I mean, so, you know, how many of these are really existing? So what it is, it's a performative act, okay? It is, I am really fired up about this candidate. I'm putting a yard sign in and I'm planting it down. Now it also has to do with the local political culture. So like, for example, New Hampshire has a very different political culture than Virginia. Virginia, we don't usually do yard signs. You know, New Hampshire, it's like, hey, first in the nation, we're doing all of the things, right? And so it's probably much more reflective of who's fired up than it really is who's winning, okay? Right. So that's the thing. It's the difference between what you, it's, it's the ultimate expression of, I am totally for this person. I don't care what you think. I'm putting it on my lawn. And if you're going to put one, you know, with the other guy or the other woman on your lawn, fine, let's do this. You know, and that's what a yard sign is at this point. It is not name recognition. It is, there are so many other better ways to spend your money to get name recognition, the, the plop down yard signs. And, you know, most of the people who are really, you know, good at politics and, you know, good consultants and people who are serious who are running understand that these are performative acts as opposed to things that are really moving the needle. We have got to wrap up. The book is Modern Political Campaigns. If you're looking on video, you can see it right over the left shoulder of our guest, Michael Cohen. It's it's a must read. I'm not, I'm not just blowing smoke here. I hope people will check it out. Check out Beyond Politics. Subscribe. Follow us on Facebook so you can stay up to date. Check out my new article in Newsweek. Just search for me about why maybe it's time to panic in America. And join us again next time for another Beyond Politics. Thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate it.